All right. You can have your Bibles handy, uh, if you would. Uh, again, we are in a little bit of a mini-series just before we get into the revelation of Jesus Christ. As such, um, we are not necessarily parking on a passage of Scripture. We are talking about the concepts related to interpretation. And as we've been walking through, on our way to the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ... We slowed down a couple weeks ago to talk about foundational assumptions. And those foundational assumptions were fourfold. We assume that the Bible is an accurate book. We assume that the Bible is a deliberate book. We assume that the Bible is a unified book. We assume that the Bible is a spiritual book. These assumptions are those upon which our understanding of the Bible is built. And indeed, if we don't share these assumptions, then we are going to come to different conclusions about the nature of biblical revelation. If we assume that the Bible uh, is not accurate, or we assume that God has not really desired to communicate with us, or that the Bible contradicts itself, or that we don't need the Spirit's help in understanding, if, if the Bible just becomes an academic exercise then we will without, without question come to some conclusions that are very different than if we make these assumptions and we stick to these assumptions. Now from there last week, we laid down the general rules, and I say general rules here, we laid down the general rules by which we interpret the Bible. Literally, because the Bible is a deliberate book that God intends to communicate, we believe that the Bible is Literal. Now, we noted that the rules of interpretation relate themselves to those elements of the foundational assumptions. How we interpret the Bible is built upon what we believe, the assumptions we make about the Bible. And in this, we have a consistency in our interpretation. Whenever we can, we interpret the Bible literally. I was listening to a man this week, and he used a word which I really like. Uh, I, I, I like using the word literal because it gives us the default. We say general. Obviously, as we've mentioned last week, and we'll mention again in a couple of weeks, depending on the genre of literature that's found in the particular passage of the Bible, we interpret it differently. We will not interpret poetry in the, sa in the same literal manner that we will interpret narrative. We will not interpret apocalyptic literature, end times prophecy, in the same way we would interpret um, uh, poetry or narrative or, or, or any of those each one has a different style, and we have to interpret it within the style. To that, to that end, many people, instead of using the word literal there, they use the word, word natural. In other words, we draw out the natural expectation of that genre of literature, and we interpret it naturally. So if we are reading poetry, I'm going to use the rules of interpreting poetry and draw out a natural meaning. If it's historical narrative, I'm going to use the rules of facts of narrative and I'm going to draw out the natural meaning. I like that idea. If you want to use natural there, it's good. Uh, I, I like literal as well, though, because even though we don't always interpret the Bible literally in that sense, we fall back upon a literal interpretation. When in doubt, be as literal as possible. Right? So I'm not necessarily uncomfortable with literal, but I do like that word natural. And if you're taking notes and you're keeping all of this in your mind or, or, or in a notebook, uh, add natural to that idea there. We'll talk about that more. This week we're talking about dispensationalism, our framework. Next week and the week after we'll talk about how prophecy, the rules for prophecy, the natural rules, they're actually drawn from our understanding of our framework, which is why I'm doing it a little bit almost seemingly out of order. And then we'll talk about the kingdom. And then we'll talk about the big picture. So it's just going to keep building. We're going to keep building one on top of another as we learn all of this. So literally, we assume that God actually wants to communicate with us. We assume that God used the norms of language to communicate. In areas where the Bible is narrative, we assume that, that it's accurate, that it's fact-based. In areas where the Bible is poetic, we assume metaphorical language. In areas where the Bible is teaching, we assume allegories, we assume parables. We assume the uh, fictional stories that make a, 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 a realistic point. In areas where the Bible is prophetic, we, ex we assume things such as exaggeration, hyperbole. We assume generalization. We assume, uh, assume stereotypical language. We ex assume metaphorical language. We assume these things because uh, it's prophetic. That's how language works. And so we take language at its natural meaning and we draw it out. We also interpret the Bible grammatically. 
and historically because we believe that the Bible is accurate. We don't spend our time questioning whether the Bible is accurate because we believe the Bible is both inspired and preserved. Now, that being said, of course, we account for the possibility of error in translation, right? We account for that possibility. We account for errors in printing. We account for for errors in understanding. But we never yield the assumption that God desired to communicate His Word, and so God gave us a Bible that is both inspired in the originals and then preserved by Him in the subsequent manuscripts so that the Greek and the Hebrew have been preserved for us, and then we have good translations of those preserved texts. We then interpret the Bible contextually because we assume that the Bible is a unified book. We look for themes that are running throughout the books. We look for continuity between books and Old Testament and New Testament. We interpret the Bible in one passage based upon what the Bible says in other passages because we assume it to be all written by God, given by God, though penned through several different authors. We assume that the Bible does not contradict itself. So when we come to passages that seem to contradict themselves, we look for the reconciliation between them. We assume the problem to be with our understanding and we look for valid ways. We don't just say, we're going to pull from this and that and make it work. We look for valid ways within the rules and assumptions of our interpretive method to make it work. And in doing so, there is yet to be any legitimate contradiction found in the Bible through 2,000 years of inspection. They've all been explained or rationalized in a way that is valid. And this leads us to our final point that the Bible is a prayerful book. Sometimes the best way, well, always the best way to study is prayerfully. And oftentimes the best way to interpret a difficult passage is to prayerfully study, prayerfully meditate, and allow God through His Spirit to reveal His Word to us. And that would be dangerous because that's how a lot of heresies have started, right? God just told me this. Except that we have rules and assumptions that guide us. And if what we believe might be right doesn't fit the rules and the assumptions, we throw it out. I had a pastor friend call me this week. He called me. Uh, he's a little bit older than I am, and he has not kept up with his Greek from seminary, and I have. So uh, he called me and he said, I've got a, a question about a passage of Scripture, and uh, it reads this way in the King James, and it reads this way in other translations, and I've consulted ten commentaries, and they all interpret it this way, but I'm thinking of it a different way. Could you get dig into the Greek a little bit and, and look and see if there's any help there? So we dug into the Greek a little bit, and we went through, and we used our methods of interpretation, assuming the Bible is, is true and unified and, and literal, grammatical, historical, contextual interpretation, and we filtered it through all of those filters, and we filtered it through the language, and I said, you've got a good foot to stand on here. You can interpret it that way, and it's not contradictory. The, both ways make sense. It could be one, it could be the other, God knows, but, but you're not not, you're not in, in, in wrong ground here. But it took a process of filtering it through the Word of God, filtering it through our method of interpretation, filtering it through the language to understand whether or not he was on firm ground because he didn't just want to stand up on a Sunday morning to his people and say, this is my theory and I think this is the way it is if it was not going to be at least acceptable within the, the context of our interpretation. That's the idea here. We have this protection in place if we respect interpretive methods, if we respect the framework within which we interpret. So from all of these principles comes what we will call our person our personal interpretive framework. If we do this right, we aren't choosing a framework. Again, a lot of people put, a cart, put the cart before the horse. They choose a framework, and then they decide how they're going to interpret the Bible based upon a framework. No, we interpret the Bible, and we, we develop our rules based upon the norms of language, and then that dictates our framework. That dictates how we're going to see the Bible. We don't draw the rules out of the framework. We draw the framework out of the rules. Now, we've mentioned in the past couple of messages that for many, what they believe is somewhat arbitrary. They choose what sounds best to them and they go with it. To this end, we made two statements, right? Most uh, people suffer from one of these two problems in their interpretation. Either regressive methods of interpretation, where you set what you believe first, and then you fit how you interpret the Bible around what you believe. Or... 
inconsistent application of interpretation, where you pick and choose from all the different methods of interpretation based arbitrarily upon what sounds good to you. And as you interact with individuals with whom you disagree, there's a high probability that you'll find one of these two to be true within their, their, their lives. But when you see whole movements with dramatically different ideas about the Bible, when you see entirely different movements within the church, movements that have intelligent and credentialed people leading them, and one's going that way and one's going this way, and you say, how is that even possible? Here's what you can know. You know that they have developed an entirely different framework. An entirely different framework for interpreting the Bible. And you know that their framework is different because their rules of interpretation are different. Now again, when it comes to laymen, you know, a lot of times you don't think this deep, right? You don't build on top of... But, but with those people that are at the heads of movements, I mean, unless they're just are really being arbitrary, they know what they're doing. And they have chosen different rules of interpretation, different foundational assumptions, and that has brought them to the claims that they make. That's brought them to the claims that they're making. So when you see these people that are leading these major movements, you know that, that somewhere along the line, they diverge from you not just in what you believe about the end times or what you believe about salvation. They diverge at a deeper level. What they believe about the Bible, who they think God actually is, and what, has, what he's done, and how we interpret the Bible. So our goal in this message is not to prove the framework that the church follows. I'm not going to try to prove it. I'm going to present it. And the reason why I feel confident just presenting it is I believe that the framework that we choose is a natural, is naturally drawn out of the rules that we've set and the assumptions that we've made. And so we're naturally drawing our framework out of that. And there's some wiggle room within that framework, as there always is, right? But I don't feel like I have to prove it because if we keep the rules that we've, made, that we've laid down and the assumptions that we've laid down, then this is really what's going to come of that. And that's simply what we've done here. It's very natural. It's organic. And that's what we want. Because if at any point we're, we're forcing, we're shoehorning our desires into something, then we, get, we become inconsistent. And that house of cards that we talked about comes, comes falling down. So what I'm going to present today is what we've derived from following our assumptions, following our rules. Generally speaking, with an understanding that there will always be variation and disagreement among those even who share common roots, what I present today is an interpretive framework that is established through the adherence to these assumptions that is often called dispensationalism. Now, dispensationalism, is, is, it was coined that um, 150, 200 years ago, but it has been around for much, much longer than that. But... The, the last generation of the church, the last several generations of the church has been really into labeling everything. There's be a label for everything. And so that's the label that has often been given, dispensationalism, and it is falling uh, heavily out of favor with the church today as the church drifts back towards Reformed theology. Uh, Reformed theology, of course, was big in the Reformation. The Baptist church was not a product of the Reformation uh, at all. Uh, however, Reformed theology came out of that Reformation. It was intended to reform the Catholic church. Uh, it was not intended to come out of the Catholic church. And then over time, Reformed theology began to weaken as uh, and dispensational theology, as it were, began to, to, to strengthen. And and then with neo-orthodoxy and, and, and all of the, the elements of um, early late 1800, early 1900 controversy, uh, there began to be a renewed push, uh, especially in the last uh, couple of decades, for the holiness of God. And if you go looking for writings about the holiness of God, you're going to find them in the old Reformed authors. And that has rekindled this desire for Reformed theology. Um, and Reformed theology and dispensationalism are opposites in many ways. Um, rooting back to especially how they recognize the relationship between the church and Israel. So we, however, recognize that it, as we've kept our assumptions and our, our rules that we're drawing simply out of that. And it brings us to this, this framework which has been labeled for the past couple of centuries dispensationalism. And where I want to start with this is with, with the reality or recognizing the, the unalterable themes 
of the Bible. As we walk through the Bible, we see themes that span from start to finish, themes that go from beginning to end. We know from the scriptures that God does not change, that his character remains the same. He is ever a God of holiness and righteousness and justice. He is ever a God of love and mercy and grace. Uh, when you talk with some people, I get it in the jail all the time, they'll say, I don't want to talk about that God of the Old Testament because he was a mean, evil, angry God. Let's talk about Jesus in the New Testament because he's a loving, merciful God. And whenever you hear that, the first thing that you need to do is say, it's the same God. He did not change. Go back into the Old Testament. Mercy is everywhere. Love is everywhere. Look in the New Testament. Justice is everywhere. Holiness is everywhere. It's the same God. He did not change. But we do see different elements of his character emphasized, don't we? At different times, in different ages. We do see him acting in a different way, interacting with men and women in a different way. And that's what we, we recognize as we see these trends. So we have these, un, the, these unalterable Bible themes. I give you a few examples. Satan's rebellion uh, and the, what, what we would call the angelic or the satanic conflict. Man's sinfulness. Uh, we see it from beginning to end. Eternal redemption, eternal judgment, salvation by faith, God's kingdom program. All of these things we, we can trace from beginning to end throughout the scriptures. These are just examples. I'm not going to teach on each and every one of these. Uh, we will talk about God's kingdom program in a few weeks. Um, God has a plan for this world. He's working out that plan. And while cultures change and while times change, God who, provide, who presides over those cultures, who presides over time, He does not change. Here we have a list of several unalterable themes which begin at the beginning and are fulfilled at the end. And we see them throughout the entirety of the biblical record. Now, to illustrate this point, I'd like to talk about salvation by faith. I'm going to use this as an illustration of an unalterable theme. And you're going to begin to see, perhaps, how we draw the framework that we draw from the idea of salvation by faith alone. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Here we have laid down a, a principle, an unaltered theme throughout Scripture, that salvation is by the grace of God, by means or through faith. By grace, through faith. This was written to a church, the church of Ephesus. And it was given at that time when God, when Paul makes it very clear, as we'll talk about in just a moment, that that gospel, faith in what, is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the reason why it is by faith, by grace through faith, is so that no man may boast. So that no man in heaven will be able to glory in himself, in his works, in his efforts, in his faithfulness, because it has nothing to do with that. Salvation is by grace, through faith alone. Now, the gospel is given to us quite plainly in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. The gospel says this, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. This is the message of the Gospel. The reality is that we are sinners, that because we are sinners, we have been separated from God. But that God loved man so much, even though sin had separated us from God, so that we had, uh, if we got what we deserved, we would go to hell. We would go to a place of eternal separation from God in a place of torment and conscious separation called hell. Lake of fire eventually. But God loved man so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins, to die for my sins, to take our punishment and to purchase for us eternal life. And then he rose again from the dead because a dead Savior is no good to us, proving that not only does he have the power over death, but he has the power over sin. He has the power to save. He has the power to do what he's promised to do. And so that anyone who places their faith in Jesus' finished work would be saved. And we know that Jesus died at a definitive point in history, right? We can trace that back to about 2,000 years ago when Jesus died. We also know, however, from the biblical timeline, if we trace the Bible's timeline properly, there's a few po potential gaps, 
that people lived on the earth for some 4,000 years or so before Jesus is coming, right? Jesus died on the cross 30 or so A.D., and there was at least 4,000 years or so before that of people who lived and who died. Well, if the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and he rose again the third day according to, our, according to the scriptures, and if Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man cometh unto the Father but by me, well, what do we do with those 4,000 years of history of all those people that, that lived before Jesus lived? What do we do with all those people that died before Jesus lived and died? How do we handle that? What do we do with them? How could they believe a gospel that hasn't yet taken place? If Jesus had not yet come, had not yet died, had not yet risen, how could they believe the gospel as it's stated? And this is where we begin to see what we call progressive revelation. Progressive revelation is an idea, again, that we draw out of Scripture that throughout time God has been progressively, had been progressively revealing more and more of Himself. That He revealed a little bit of Himself at first, and then with each successive age, He revealed more of Himself. He gave man more responsibility and thus more accountability for Himself as He revealed more of His character, as He revealed more of who He is, until the final revelation of Jesus Christ, as Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, that God, who in sundry times and in diverse manners has spake in times past, through the prophets, have in these last days spoken to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the epitome, the climax of God's revelation to man. And so, in this last age, God has finalized His revelation and He has given maximum revelation through His Son, Jesus Christ. But He had been revealing Himself in generations past in a lesser way, to a lesser degree. He did not reveal the fullness of Jesus Christ to the Old Testament prophets. In fact, Peter tells us that they were eagerly anticipating and searching out what those prophecies might have meant. And God made it clear that it was not unto them, but unto us they prophesied the things that they did prophesy. It was for our benefit, not for theirs. And yet, there was revelation. That idea of progressive revelation is, I believe, very naturally drawn out of the text. And it's one of the tenets of our framework one of the things that we hold to in this framework that we call dispensationalism. So beginning all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, God promises to Eve after they fall to sin, and as God is cursing man and woman and serpent, He says that there would come a time where there would be the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And there was a glimmer of the seed that would come who would destroy the serpent who had caused Eve to fall. We go all the way to Revelation, and the Bible calls Satan that old serpent, and we know that that serpent was Satan. And we know that that serpent would be crushed. But then we continue through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Moses, through David, through the prophets, and we see that with each successive person and in each successive age, God gives a little bit more of himself until he comes in flesh and reveals himself in his fullness. What binds every generation? As we talk about salvation, what binds every generation is faith. Every generation of God followers, what binds them from Adam and Eve all the way to the very last person on the very last day of history that will, will come to know God, that will be with us in heaven one day if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, what binds them all is faith in the revealed Word of God. Faith in that which God has given them. I'm going to show you what I mean in just a moment, but first let's get even more foundational. We've established several times recently that Jesus is God through various sermons. Isaiah chapter 41 verse 4 says, Jehovah is the first and the last. Revelation chapter 1 verses 17 and 18 says, Jesus is the first and the last. Jesus is Jehovah God. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he made it clear that to love Jehovah was to love him, right? To believe Jehovah's word through Moses was to believe Jesus' words. To believe Jesus' words was to believe Jehovah. 
Indeed, Jesus told his listeners in John chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus said unto them, If God were your Father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Jesus tells them that if they truly loved the Father, they would believe his revelation. See, because they were saying, we love Jehovah, but we don't believe in you, Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. I'm sorry, it cannot work that way. I and my Father are one. If you believe Jehovah, you do believe me. If you're rejecting me, it's because you did already reject the Father. It, 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 is, it is plainly spoken of by Jesus in the text. They are in complete agreement, Jesus and the Father. Several chapters earlier, Jesus would say the same thing of the law of Moses. John chapter 5, verses 46 and 47. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? When you read the, the Moses, when you read the Pentateuch, when you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy... Jesus says, if you believe Moses, you'll believe me. If you believe me, then you believe Moses because he wrote of me because his words are my words because it's all the word of God. And Jesus is the word of God incarnate. Moses wrote of Jesus. Moses penned the word of God and Jesus is the word of God. Therefore, there's no contradiction between them. Jesus would give a similar statement in his account of the rich man of Lazarus. We preached on it not too long ago uh, in our evening service as we're walking through Luke. Uh, the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus tells of two men. A poor man named Lazarus and a, rich, a certain rich man. We don't get his name. They both die. Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, to paradise. And the rich man goes and he is burning in the fires of judgment in hell. The rich man calls out to Father Abraham. And he's across a great gulf from Abraham who is in paradise. And he begs for mercy. He begs that, that his tongue could be parched. He begs then that, that Abraham would send Lazarus back from the dead to reach his brothers. Say, please reach my brothers. If Lazarus comes back from the dead, I know, I know that my brothers will believe. Abraham indeed cannot give it. And we pick up in this account with a little bit of that last interaction in Luke 16, beginning in verse 27. The Bible says, Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldst send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said unto them, here it is, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Look, if they're not going to believe Moses and the prophets, and Jesus is the embodiment of the Old Testament Scriptures, if they're not going to believe the Old Testament Scriptures, then they're not going to believe even if one rose from the dead. And by the way, Jesus did rise from the dead. And they still didn't believe. Lazarus rose from the dead. Not the same Lazarus here, a different Lazarus. Mary and Martha's brother. And what did the Pharisees do when Lazarus rose from the dead? It didn't say they got down on their knees and repented of their, their, their wickedness. It says, and they conspired as to how they might kill him. Immediately they tried to kill the evidence. They tried to kill Lazarus again. The idea... What Abraham is telling the rich man here is that the issue in regard to salvation is not about how progressed the revelation is. According to how every, any generation has received. It's about whether or not that generation was willing to accept the level of revelation that they were given. And if they believe the God of the Old Testament, then when Jesus comes, they would without fail believe Christ. Because he is in full agreement with and indeed is the the absolute embodiment of the Old Testament because he is God. So it looks kind of like this. Jesus is the top of the pyramid. He's the embodiment of the revelation of God. He reveals God to the fullest extent that God has chosen to reveal himself to mankind. Indeed, the final book of our Bible is the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? It's not the revelation of end times events. It's not the revelation of St. John the Divine, so it says in my Bible, but it's not that. The very first words are the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the finality of what God has chosen to show us of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the finality of what God has chosen to show us of himself. Until such time as Psalm 17 
Verse 15 says, David writes, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in thy likeness. One day we will awake in the likeness of Christ. One day, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, Right now we see through a glass darkly, but then shall we know even as also we are known. That day we will know things that we never could have imagined. But until the day that we step into glory, the fullness of the revelation of God has been given to us in Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus Christ is the fullness of what the law taught, right? The law taught us of God. The law taught us of Christ. The law taught us of holiness. The law taught us of mercy. The law taught us of all of these things, but only lesser. If we now, with even Christ and the Holy Spirit as our guide, see through a glass darkly, as 1 Corinthians, the idea there is misted glass, right? We're seeing through glass, but it's got... Have you ever been driving... And then all of a sudden, you, you look at your, your window and you're like, wow, that window is disgusting. And you realize that the smog, you know, you've had outside air on, the smog's been collecting on that window. Or if you wear glasses, every once in a while, you're reading or something, and then all of a sudden, you, you finally catch a glimpse of all of the smudges on your glasses, and you clean them, and you say, wow, I've been looking through like 50% clarity for the last who knows how long, because they're so dirty. And, and then you clean them off. Well, we see through a glass darkly in this age. If you think about the law, the law just kind of was a little darker still. They could see it. It was there. They could see movement on the other side, but it was just a little darker still, but it was still there. And with each uh, lower form of revelation, it's just a little bit darker. It's a little bit less. And so the law was built on creation and tradition. The, the things of the, uh, that, that we find in the law of Moses, they existed before the law of Moses. We can read about them in Job. And Job was about the same time as Abraham. We can read about them in Abraham's day. They were giving sacrifices all the way back to Cain and Abel. Noah talks about clean and unclean animals, right? On the ark, two by two of each kind of animal, except for clean animals. Seven of every clean animal went on the ark. So the clean and unclean animal idea was designated all the way back to Noah's day, well before the law. And yet the law codified it, it, it clarified it, it made it, uh, it, 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 it rubbed a little bit of the darkness away of God's character and God's methods and God's desires. That's the idea here. Jesus is the top of the pyramid. Prior to Jesus' coming, the highest form of personal uh, uh, revelation in regard to God was the law. That was the, that was the epitome. That was as far as you could get. Because Jesus had not yet come. The Holy Spirit had not yet indwelled. All of these things. And so the law was the top of that pyramid. The law taught of the Messiah that would come. The law reflected the character of God and His values. Now, prior to the law, man had the created order, as he always does. He had the reality of his conscience. He had the verbal traditions of the fathers passed from generation to generation, from uh, Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel, then Seth, and, and then through the lineage to Noah, then Noah's son, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We know that the, the men in Abraham's day feared God. We know that the, the Pharaoh in, in Egypt feared God when Abraham and Sarah went down there. Uh, we know that there were men in, uh, in the land of Canaan that feared God. Uh, we can see biblical tradition spanning every single culture. You can see it in Chinese tradition. You can see biblical traditions. Have you ever looked up the, the characters, the Chinese characters? You know, it's the oldest written language to date, and it's the, the character language of China that they have in existence. And if you ever look at the words for man and, and uh, for um, uh, so, some of those basic words, they actually reflect the biblical account. Uh, it's, it's incredible. You can do a pretty quick Google search online and see it. It's there. And it's there because there was a form of revelation that was given. Again, the created order, the realities of conscience, they're 100% in line with God, but it generally revealed very little. It's also the darkest form of revelation of God, Right? And then you stack on top of that the law, and then we stacked on that Jesus. However, what we know is that salvation is by grace through faith in the revealed Word of God. That as a man genuinely accepted the realities of the revelation of God that had been given to him, if he committed himself to the revelation of God, God would be found in that man, and that man's faith would be counted to righteousness. So we find... Uh, oh, we'll get there in a moment. To this end, it can be confidently stated that any man who lived pre-law, if he had lived in the time of the law, he would have believed to the full the character of the law if he had accepted creation and tradition by faith. 
And likewise, as we saw in Scripture just a few minutes ago, any man who, accepted, who lived in the time of the law, who fully believed, who had accepted the revelation of God in the law, would accept Jesus when Jesus came into the world. And that's what Jesus was telling them. Look, he says, you're in a transition age. You've been under the law, and here I come preaching grace. But if you believed the law, you would believe me too. If you actually knew the God of the Old Testament, you would know me too. Because it's the same God. It's the same word. It's the same scripture. It's the same truth. To this end, if I believe the true Jesus, then I will also accept the God of the Old Testament, the God of creation, because they are one God. There's no contradiction between God. Likewise, if any man today accepts that there is a creator and the revelation of his creator and accepts the God of the Bible because they are the same, they will accept Christ as well. Because God is indivisible. To commit to him is to commit to him in every manifestation. Now, pastor, does that mean that if a person accepts just creation today and genuinely accepts just creation or genuinely accepts Jehovah in the Old Testament, he's saved? No. No. Remember, we're speaking about the extent to which God had given revelation. All God had given before the law was the traditions and creation. Then all God had given before Christ was the law. So you hit a, a ceiling, right? God reveals himself. You follow that revelation until you hit the ceiling. Well, Jesus Christ is the ceiling now. Jesus Christ is the ceiling. In this age, God has fully revealed himself through Christ. Indeed, as we've mentioned already, John 14, 6, the Bible tells us, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But what can we trust? This gets back to that idea of what about those people in the deepest parts of Africa who have never heard, right? What about those people who have never uh, had the chance Here's what we can trust at the very least is that any man or woman on this earth at any given time in history, even in the darkest parts of the jungle, if they accept the revelation that they've been given, which is in the deepest, darkest parts of the jungle, creation and conscience, that there is a creator God and that there is an inherent moral accountability that they have to someone because the conscience tells them when they're doing right and wrong. And the Holy Spirit makes that known to every man, the Bible says. That the work of, of the Holy Spirit in this world, John chapter 16, is to convince men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And so if they accept that revelation that God will be faithful to give them more revelation until such time as they hit that ceiling, until such time as they receive Christ, until such time as, as they are justified by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. If he's accepted the lesser and he's accepted it with all his heart, we can trust God to be faithful to get the rest to them. That's God's business. But here's what we can trust. That if you accept what God has given, He'll always give you more. If you seek me, ye will find me if you search with all your heart. Right? So those who are... who, who God is just. God is not going to not let people know of Him and then punish them for not knowing of Him. But we know that God makes everyone known of him because the heavens declare the glory of God. And we know that God is big enough that if somebody in sub-Saharan Africa says creation shows there to be a God and there is a moral accountability and there must be one because I see, I I, I feel guilt when I do certain things and so does he and so does he and so does he. So there must be a, a moral arbiter and they keep seeking God is big enough to show them the way. Can we trust that? that God is big enough to show them the way. And so we know that every man, woman, in heaven one day will be there by faith in the revealed word of God. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So how does this play out practically? Going back to Abraham for a moment. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 8, the Bible says this, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, And these shall all nations be blessed. Abraham was given a promise called the gospel, that in that time all nations would be blessed. Notice the gospel as is designated here is not 
the gospel as is designated in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, according to the scripture. Indeed, that part of the revelation had not yet been given. What was the gospel in this generation? It's the same gospel, by the way. It's not a different gospel. It's just that there's coming a day when all nations would be blessed through Messiah. That's the promise. We've got the promise fulfilled. They had the promise made. That in thee shall all nations be blessed. There's coming a seed. And God asked Abraham to hang his life upon this promise. To live in Canaan because of this promise. To trust that God would give him a seed through Sarah because of this promise. To cast out the bondwoman and her son because of this promise. To take a wife for his son from among his brethren because of this promise. And Abraham believed that promise with all of his heart. And it was counted unto him for righteousness because that is the extent to which God had revealed himself to Abraham. And Abraham accepted it. But here's what we can know. If Abraham had lived in the days of Jesus Christ, Abraham would have believed a hook, hook, line, and sinker. Why? Because he had faith in God's revelation. And that's the idea. Now, there is... keep trying to get ahead of myself here. In Abraham's case, he followed God out of his country and into Canaan. There God revealed himself further, telling him of seed, telling him of blessing. This was the extent of God's revelation to Abraham, and so it was counted unto Abraham for righteousness. But this, we also know that Abraham lived in the days before the law. Had he lived in the days of the law, he would have believed the testimony of the law in regard to Christ. Had, again, had Abraham lived in the days of Jesus, he would have believed the testimony of Christ. Because they are all the same. And this is the point. It is a unified theme from Genesis to Revelation. Salvation by grace through faith in the revelation of God in our generation, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. One gospel, one promise, one way to be saved, lest any man should boast. And this is an important point as we talk about dispensationalism as well. Because there are some, we would call them hyper-dispensationalists, who believe that because each age was slightly different, they say they were different gospels, and they say that they were each saved a different way. And so in the days of the law, it was faith plus works. It was faith plus the law, keeping of the law. In Abraham's day, it was faith plus sacrifices. And so they begin to heap something on top of it. Well, look, if salvation is lest any man should boast, and if every man standing before God one day in glory will be there and be able to say, I did not earn it, then the gospel has to be the same. If Abraham is up there because he had faith and because he worked really hard, then he has something to boast, doesn't he? But the Bible says Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. If anyone in the days of the law is there because they believed God and kept the law, then they have somewhere to boast, don't they? Because they persevered, may I use the word? Because they kept the law until the end. And they can get up there and say, I did it because I did it. <laughs> I'm here because of me. But the enduring theme from Genesis to Revelation is by grace through faith, lest any man should boast. One gospel, slightly different revelation, progressively over time, but the same promise. Believe me, and it will be counted unto you for righteousness. Justification by grace through faith. So, we can confidently say that in every age, every generation, mankind has been saved by faith in the revealed Word of God. And when man exercises faith in one aspect, he is exercising faith in all, so that if God were to reveal more to him, he would instantly know it, believe it, because it is the God who has... It, it is the same faith in the same God in which he has placed his faith. Now, I pray that my words in this regard are clear. My statements here have a tremendous amount of potential to anger and to offend if they're not properly understood. My statements can also be very easily taken out of context and so confuse, cause a listener to think I'm denying salvation by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Please know I'm not saying these things. Some of you, you've been with me long enough that I've got some currency with you and you can say, I trust pastor's heart on this. I think I know where he's going. I'm going to assume right. Others of you, people listening online, may not have that currency uh, to say, I'm going to trust what pastor's saying here. But please know I'm not saying that, that that's, I'm not trying to give you a different gospel. Salvation by grace. Through, that's why we started with it, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. We started because that's our definition. That's salvation. Let's not muddy those waters. 
But what I'm trying to emphasize here is that Jesus and the Father are one. To accept Jehovah is to accept Jesus. To accept Jesus is to accept Jehovah. They are not divided. God is indivisible. God's work is indivisible. And to whoever it is that accepts it on God's terms, it's all the same. It's all going to lead to Jesus. That's where the road leads. doesn't matter if you jumped on at creation, if you jumped on at conscience, if you jumped on at the law, or you jumped on at the New Testament. All roads get you to Christ, and that's where God will take you. And if you don't get to Christ, it's because somewhere you jumped off the road. Somewhere you jumped off the road. So Jesus tells us in John 10, and by the way, this is what Jesus means in John 10. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. May I tell you what this passage is not saying? This passage is not saying that people in every age are already elect to be saved and when they hear the gospel, faith is created in them to be saved. That's not what the context is saying. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, I am transitioning from an Old Testament economy to a New Testament economy. Those of you that say you love the law so much, if you did love the law so much, if you had accepted the revelation of the law, you'd already be one of my sheep. And when I came a calling, you called him Jehovah, I'm Jesus. But when you heard my voice calling, you'd have heard the voice of Jehovah because you'd have already accepted him from the Old Testament. That's what he's saying here. He's saying that those who were following the Jehovah of the law, the Jehovah of the Old Testament, the great shepherd, when Jesus came, they would immediately identify the call of Jesus as the call of the shepherd. The shepherd that they knew of from their Old Testament scriptures. The shepherd that they knew of from the law. They've, they would have already heard, that when, as soon as they heard the call, they might look at Jesus and many of, even the apostles did, right? They looked at him and, and John the Baptist sent his, his followers at one point and said, are, are you really the one that should come? Because he was not what they expected. But here's the thing. Though he wasn't what they expected, the call was indisputable. They listened and they said, that is the master's voice. And so they followed him. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you heard the master's voice in the Old Testament, and if you, if you were really loyal to Moses and the law of Moses, if you were really loyal to the Old Testament, then as soon as you heard my voice, even if you didn't understand it, you'd know that that was the shepherd. Because my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. And they are God's sheep, and Jesus is God. So while they may not recognize the man, he may not be doing what they would expect, they would, without a doubt, recognize the voice of their God. And they would follow the voice of their God. That's the idea here. Had they accepted the Father, when the Son came, they would accept the Son. Those that did accept the Father, when they heard Jesus' voice, they accepted the Son. So Nathaniel is sitting under the fig tree. And Jesus comes up. And they interact. And in the midst of their interaction, Nathaniel says, my Lord and my God. He knew it. This is the one we've been seeking. He heard the voice of the shepherd. It was the voice of the God that he'd been serving for years. This was him. He was in. Jesus says, if, if you're surprised that I said I saw you under the fig tree, you just wait. <laughs> you, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's the idea. Because Jesus and the Father are one. So salvation by faith becomes for us an example of an unalterable Bible theme. But though the concept is from beginning to end the same, there's variation in Revelation from age to age to age. In different times, different ages, these themes manifested themselves in different ways. And this is so natural in the Bible that I, I teach it just as a matter of course. This, this, just, this is what flows out of the Bible, right? You look at Abraham, you look at Moses, you look at, and you see progressive revelation, and you see uh, the, these unalterable themes, and you recognize the theme from beginning to end as you compare Scripture with Scripture. This is natural. We're trying to just draw out of the text what we're seeing here, what we're identifying. 
And so we can confidently state that God builds revelation upon revelation, progressive revelation. We can confidently state that God culminates that revelation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this leads us to our second primary consideration today, that though there are unalterable and consistent Bible themes, they do manifest themselves in different ways in different ages. And this is simply what we call dispensationalism. That man's relation to God is not the same in every age or dispensation of history. That what we'll see in a couple of weeks as we study the kingdom program is God's purpose transitioning from age to age, testing mankind in different ways, proving mankind in different ways, all revealing the same thing though. Man's utter sinfulness and failure and God's power to save. In every age, and we're going to see that, that as we walk through the dispensations briefly in a few moments, we're going to see that each age begins with God giving mankind extra responsibility and ends with mankind failing at that responsibility. And then God gives a little bit more revelation and responsibility. And mankind fails again. And he gives a little more. And mankind fails again. And all throughout, people are getting saved. And all throughout, good, there are good men and good women who love the Lord and are doing what's right. But in each generation, it culminates with the, the, the overarching failure of mankind. Proving once and for all, by the time we get to the end of the book, that only God is God. That only God is good. That only God is great. That only God can save. And that mankind must have God. It will be a, an, an, a total vindication of God from what mankind and Satan himself tried to strip from God in the Garden of Eden. That's where we're going with this. That's the idea I've mentioned that these distinctions are, in fact, quite natural when we read the text. So if we're going to read the text literally, we're naturally going to draw out these distinctions. But the Bible is often more explicit about these divisions as well. And the word that's oftentimes used is this word in the Greek. It's, it's ion. That's neither here nor there. It's a word that means age or era, dispensation. It can also mean eternity. The word first speaks of eternity, the idea of every age, ages upon ages, then second, it speaks of the individual periods of time that make up this eternity. Every culture and every society recognizes ages, right? They recognize distinctions. Uh, we talk about the Industrial Revolution. We talk about the modern age. We talk about different philo philosophies that go from one age to another. Uh, modernism, right? And how modernism dominated an age. And then it became postmodernism. And we're now in a postmodern age. Uh, we even talk about it among generations. There's the baby boomers, right? And there's Generation X. And there's the millennials. And we recognize that each generation has different priorities, different desires, different um, propensities. Uh, right now, the millennials are in the news uh, quite regularly, if you read the news, uh, because the millennials are in a very unique generation. It's the first generation that grew up on this tech, right, on, on technology, uh, where, where it was natural. And because of that, uh, it has fundamentally changed the way millennials think, fundamentally changed the way millennials operate. Also, based upon economic conditions of any given time and culture and such, all of these things define generations. Well, we, so we have that idea. It's not unnatural for us to recognize generations, epochs, eras. And the Bible uses this word age to speak of this. So when Jesus gives the parable of the pearl of great price and afterwards says in Matthew 13, verse 49, so shall it be at the end of the world. I didn't highlight it here, but world in our King James is, is often our King James translates age world. Not the best translation, but it's, it's valid. It's just not perhaps the best way for our mind to, to understand it. The angel shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just. So we understand that Jesus is not speaking specifically of the end of the material earth here, right? He does not sever the wicked from the just at, at, at the time where he melts the worlds with a fervent heat. He actually does it at the end of the, the church age, the age in which God is working right now. Paul exhorts Titus in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, present, uh, righteously, and, and godly in this present world. There's that word age. In this present age, at this time, the church age, the time in which we're called, we're called to live in this present age soberly, righteously, and godly. To live in a manner that denies ungodliness and worldly lusts because the church is God's chosen representative to reflect himself to the world. To this end, we are called to act like it in this present age, not just 
the age that is to come when we're perfect, right? We will be perfected in a, in a, in a later age. But we have this age, this time, and we should be holy and righteous in this age as well. Indeed, the very word dispensation, it literally means to distribute or to administer, comes from a passage where the King James uses the word ages in regard to a different way that God has revealed himself at different times. Colossians chapter 1, verse 25 to 27, the Bible says, Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you, that word meaning the, the administration, that God has given me the administration of you. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches and the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul actually talks here about both progressive revelation and different ages here, right? He says there was an age when Christ was not made manifest. There was an age where the mystery of the church was not given. And now we are in an age where Christ is in you, where, where the hope of glory has been revealed in you. So here we see the concepts of progressive revelation. We see the concepts of different ages uh, all given in this idea through this passage. So then the question becomes, can we identify these dispensations, these ages? Well, we can. Again, there's not complete agreement. Uh, some people have nine, some people have five, some people have two, some people have three. Um, I've divided it into seven. I'm, uh, and as I divide it into this seven, um, I would say that everything before creation would be eternity, if you want to call it another age, and then eternity past, and then everything after the kingdom is eternity future. If you want to call those two dispensations as well, then we have nine, Right? But the seven, as we see actual, if we want to call it the, the dispensations of recorded history, we look at these seven. The first one was the, the dispensation of innocence or the age of innocence. This was from Genesis 1.28 after Adam was created to 3.22 when Adam and Eve fell to sin. During this time, man was not confirmed in holiness. He was innocent. He did not know good and evil. He had no moral conscience. He walked in fellowship with God as God instructed and intended. And as I mentioned, with every dispensation, it ends with man having utterly failed at the privileges and responsibilities that God gave to him. So God had revealed himself to mankind. Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. They had this, this very special relationship. And at the end of that, Adam rejected it, right? He failed. And man fell to sin. And the judgment upon him was the curse and the expulsion from Edom. We find that age of innocence, Genesis 1, 28 to 3, 22. And then we, we do, uh, see an age of conscience from Genesis chapter 3, 22 to 7, 23. Uh, this is after man received that moral conscience. So now man knows good and evil. And now he has been, the good and evil have been revealed to him. And he has an extra responsibility now with relation to good and evil. This is uh, spanning about 1,800 years of human history where man lived according to the dictates of his own conscience. Man began to call upon the name of the Lord. Uh, he knew what was right and wrong. He had the responsibility to choose the good and reject the evil. He called upon the name of the Lord, but quickly and deeply corrupted himself and ultimately rejected God entirely. So that by the time Noah steps onto the ark, he is one of only eight persons with enough faith to get on that ark. And the rest of the world was so deeply corrupted by evil and violence that they wouldn't even get on the ark. Complete corruption. Following the flood, we see a time of human government. Human government began, it would seem, after Noah's day. At this time, man was given the new responsibility of governing the earth. We see here where uh, capital punishment is established, that if any man shed blood, by him man's blood should be shed. We also see in this time um, the establishment of... Um, uh, the ability for mankind to slay and eat animals for their food, that was established here. And they're given this responsibility to, to have a group of people that govern the rest. Once again, this dense dispensation ends with man having utterly failed at this privilege and responsibility as we see a man arise named, named Nimrod. And Nimrod's kingdom begins at Babel 
And through it, they decide that rather than scattering across the earth and replenishing the earth as God had commanded, they are going to build a tower into the heavens and be like God. And indeed, we can trace even many current religious systems back to the perversions and the paganism and the evil of the days of Nimrod. And so mankind, again, mankind failed at at, at his innocence. He rebelled. Mankind failed at, at following his conscience. He rebelled. Mankind failed at having a human government that that enforced God's word and God's will. Mankind failed. Then we see a dispensation. It's it's, uh, often called promise or if you want to, sometimes it's often called the, the patriarchal dispensation. It was an age extending from God calling Abraham as his chosen family through to Abraham's lineage the children of Israel, and eventually the deliverance of, e- uh, of the nation from Egypt. During this dispensation, God began His specific dealings with a single family. He chose out a family through whom to deal. Not to say that other people couldn't still be saved, but this was the family through whom God would continue to do His work. The work that we can trace through Seth, and then through uh, Noah and Shem. This would be the coming of the Messiah, the one who would redeem mankind. Now it's been chosen through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So during this dispensation, God specifically deals with a single family under the context of a covenant that God had given. But this ends with failure as well. As Joseph's brothers sell him into Egypt, and there's a famine, and they all end up in Egypt, they're eventually enslaved. And God raises up Moses to deliver them and to then to introduce something new once again. And this is where God introduces His law. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 8, through the end of the Gospels, we see the law. The dispensation of the law began with God giving the law on Mount Sinai to the nation of Israel and their willing choice to enter into a covenant to keep the law. Within this promise, the nation vowed to keep God's commands and God vowed to bless them. When they failed to keep God's commands, God vowed to curse them. If they continued to fail, God would eventually send them into captivity. Yet God also promised that He would eventually establish a kingdom where He would rule and reign over this people in righteousness and deliver them from their enemies. For the next 1,500 years or so, they lived under this law. Israel did, and they did a very poor job of it. They were constantly being uh, uh, punished for failing to represent God, for failing to keep the Word of God, for failing to keep the law of God. They received all of the cursings. Their failures meant God was not able to bless them. They end up going into 70 years of captivity. And then after those 70 years of captivity, they're brought back into the land where God begins to prepare them for the next dispensation. God begins to prepare them for the coming of their Messiah. So this dispensation ends with man having utterly failed at the privileges and responsibilities that God gave them to keep the law. And it actually does not end until they slay Jesus on the cross. Jesus comes offering the kingdom. Number seven, they rejected it. They killed their Messiah. And so number six got slipped in there. An age that we call the church. This is from the resurrection of Jesus Christ all the way to the end times. In this dispensation, the church, it's unannounced in the Old Testament. God divinely transferred the responsibility of representing Himself from Israel to the church. Instead of choosing a family and asking them to believe on Him and so represent Him to the world, God now chooses an institution, as it were, the church, and then invites people in to represent Him to the world. This dispensation ends with God's purpose in gathering the church, the rapture of the church at the beginning of the tribulation period, where then God finishes His program with Israel for those seven years, at which time then God will usher in His kingdom. The final dispensation is the kingdom. Jesus Christ will return. All Israel will believe in Him. The nation will accept the salvation once offered. God will finally be able to give the nation the kingdom that He had promised them. He rules and reigns over them. His enemies are destroyed. We will be with Him on that day, ruling and reigning with Him as His church. This kingdom will last 1,000 years. Satan will be bound. The curse will be lifted. Jesus will physically rule and reign from Jerusalem with a rod of iron. At the end of this age, 
the Bible tells us Satan will be loosed. You say, how in the world could mankind possibly fail in the kingdom age? There's no tempter. There's no curse. Mankind is not uh, um, dying. The Bible says that if a man dies at a thousand, it would be as if he's a child. So, so people aren't dying. Jesus is ruling. There's no crime. There's no poverty. None of these things are happening. How could mankind fa- possibly fail? Well, this is the final testimony of God. That even in this perfect environment, people will not trust Christ. They will not love Him. And so at the end of this thousand years, Satan is loosed. And we'll talk about this more in a few weeks when we talk about the kingdom. And a large portion of the world will follow Satan and his lies once again. And they'll rebel against God, proving once and for all that even in a perfect environment, mankind fails. That the problem is not poverty or education. That the problem is not that we just need to to have a unified government so that there's no reason to fight a war because it's only borders that cause wars. No. It's going to prove once and for all that the problem is right here with man's heart. And that's why Jesus had to come to change our hearts, to break the chains of sin, to give us a new heart. And so Jesus will finally judge all those who reject Him, sending them in the lake of fire for eternity, and the eternal state begins. So it is, we believe that upon interpreting the Bible with our foundation and according to our assumptions, our rules, that God's Word defines general ages in which God operates according to unalterable characteristics, but in distinct ways, according to the degree to which God has revealed Himself to man in any given time. Progressively, He reveals more in every age. So he gives man new responsibilities as he gives him more privileges. And this culminates with the final revelation of God in the eternal state. But what you will find is that this is not the only way to interpret the Bible, is it? When our foundations change or when our rules change by which we interpret, so too our framework changes. The framework I've given you today is one, as I mentioned, that is no longer popular in the church. It is one that is uh, outright rejected among scholars in the church today. The other primary framework which we find gaining in popularity, as I mentioned today, uh, it came out of the Reformation. It's uh, shared with the Catholic Church in many ways. It rejects these age distinctions. It rejects the primary tenet of our interpretive rules, namely that we interpret the Bible literally. So they reject the literal promises of God to literal Israel, and instead they interpret those promises within the light of God's work through the church. But just know this, that each of us builds an interpretive framework based upon the assumptions and rules that we lay down. And when you're interacting with people that do not believe what you believe, it's because of their assumptions and their rules, which are different from yours. And know that, because you can bicker all day about the top-level stuff, but it's just not going to get you anywhere if our assumptions and our rules are different, right? And at Legacy Baptist Church, we believe that this framework, which is labeled today dispensationalism, is the best and most accurate framework within which to naturally draw out of the text clarity. We'll find as we study the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ that our interpretive framework is going to greatly impact how we understand this book. And that's why we're spending all this time with it. And I hope that um, as we continue to walk through it, there will be continued clarity as we build and as we build and as we build. Over the next couple weeks, we're going to talk specifically about the rules to interpreting prophecy, because the Revelation is a book of prophecy. And then from that, we'll transition into our understanding of the kingdom, and then into the Revelation of Jesus Christ. 